John chapter 10, the, the scripture passages this morning are going to be so varied. Uh, we're going to be looking at a lot of passages. We won't reread what we've already read, but we're going to be quickly looking uh, here shortly, looking at a couple of verses from John 10. That'll be our starting point. Uh, those of you who attend church regularly here know we usually camp out on a verse and expound on that verse. Sometimes we move around a little bit, but uh, we don't usually move around like we're going to move around this morning. So uh, we're going to be uh, looking at a number of passages of Scripture. As already has been said, this morning is a very special morning in the life of this congregation, isn't it? Amen. I was hoping somebody would say that. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for being so faithful. For this morning, to our measure of faith, we set aside Donald for the office of, of elder. And for a few of this, this is quite familiar. I mean, for some of us, I look around the room, and this is very familiar. Uh, some of us uh, were present when uh, Tim was ordained. And uh, I, don't, I, I meant to look in our minutes to see when that date was. I don't remember. Tim probably knows the date. but uh, uh, So this is, uh, this is the second time in the... In the uh, life of this very young ministry that we come to this hour. But some of us uh, who come from backgrounds that are quite different, this might sound new. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at the biblical material that is guiding us as to what we're doing. That's what I, uh, that's what I want to take up this morning. And you're, you should all be back to John 10. If you look at verse 11, there we see one of the great what we call I am sayings of John And that's a message for another day. But notice Jesus says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. And then he repeats himself a second time in verse 14. Now, there are a lot of things that could be said about this statement. But for our purposes this morning, I want to make a a couple of connections around the scriptures over that statement. Now, first of all, when Jesus is speaking to the first audience... He was addressing many who were actually shepherds. I think to put it into a, uh, to contextualize what's going on, I think it would be like going into Pittsburgh in the 1970s and saying, and speaking to steel workers. A lot of steel workers, and some of us can even remember around here, you know, Crucible, J&L, All of these steel mills that existed. It was a steel town. Others might remember as a pottery town. Now, we still have the pottery festivals. But the industry of sheep and shepherding is a little bit uh, strange to us. But as Jesus uh, addresses uh, his audience, he's addressing shepherds. and, And they understood something about sheep. They understood that sheep were completely dependent upon their shepherd. And it wasn't something that they were ever going to grow out of. That dependence would would really exist for the entire lifespan of the sheep. The shepherd was to protect them from wild beasts, to lead them to green pastures where they could find food, to lead them to still waters where they might drink. And some of you might say, wait a second, that that sounds like a little bit familiar It kind of sounds like Psalm 23, doesn't it? The Lord is my what? He's my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in what? Green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Right? 
For you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Perhaps it's the most famous chapter in the entire scriptures, isn't it? Even as I read this many years. You know the old King James translation of it uh, by heart, don't you? Well, this psalm beautifully encompasses the shepherding love that Christ pours forth on his children. But there's another connection that I want, I want to make this morning. And it comes from a, a period of, of Israel's history when shepherding was really at a probably an all-time low. I don't know that it's the actual lowest, but it indeed is quite low. If you will turn to Ezekiel 34, uh, the reading is on page 722, if you're making use of the Bible that's on or near your seat. And in this passage, the Lord commands Ezekiel to prophesy, and in this case, against the shepherds of Israel. Now, the interesting thing here is uh, what we learn already is that the leaders are referred to as shepherds. They're referred to as shepherds. And the Lord frames his indictment against these leaders with metaphors that are common to the industry of shepherding. As we read these verses, you'll see what I'm talking about. Ezekiel 34, if you look with me to verses 2 through 4 to start. Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. See the, the metaphors here? Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the stray you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. Now, through this indictment, we learn a lot about what the role of the shepherd is. For example, they're charged with not feeding the sheep. Okay, they should have been feeding the sheep, correct? They're charged with not strengthening the weak. Well, okay, they should have been coming alongside those who are weak. Right? Simple enough. They're charged with not healing the sick. They should have been coming alongside those who are sick. They're charged with not going after those who have strayed away. Okay, they should be going after those who have strayed from the faith. They're charged for not seeking the lost. Okay, they're to seek the lost. Right? They're charged with ruling with force and harshness. What does that teach us? They're to rule in gentleness. And as we'll see in a few minutes, they're to rule as servant leaders. Servant leaders. Now, when this work is neglected like this, what happens to the people of God? What happens to the church? Look with me to verse 5 and 6. The result of this negligence, verse 5, so they, that is God's people, were scattered. They're scattered. When this work is neglected, the result is the people of God are scattered. They're scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. Verse 6, 
My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Then in verses 7 to 10, the Lord judges these false shepherds. And then he makes a promise, which I want you to see, beginning with verse 11, if you'll look down there with me. Verse 11 and following, the Lord makes this wonderful promise. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. See all this rich metaphor from the shepherding industry being used here. Verse 15, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy, uh, I will destroy I'm sorry. I will feed them with, uh, or feed them in justice. If you look back again with me to verse 15, see those words, I myself will shepherd or will be the shepherd of my sheep. Now, I don't want you to turn back there, but mentally, let's think back to John 10. What did Jesus say in verses 11 and verses 14? I am the good shepherd. What is happening there? God himself is making good. On this promise. He's seeking the lost. Seeking those who have strayed. He's coming alongside the sick. Jesus performed miracles. He healed healed those who were sick. He strengthened the weak. A bruised reed. He will not break. And he did the unthinkable. Verse 15 of John 10 says, I lay down my life for the sheep. Sheep aren't exactly house pets, are they? Does anybody have a sheep in their house that you call Fido or Rover or something like that? Is anybody thinking about getting one? It has never occurred to me to get one. There's a reason for that. Come to think of it, I don't really know that that's really a metaphor that all of us really find to be so wonderful. We're being referred to as sheep here, aren't we? Jesus loves his sheep. He died for them. So that he could cleanse them to such a high degree that they could make a suitable bride for him. That's salvation. 
Now, for our purposes this morning, we need to take one more, one more step. And this connection comes in Jeremiah. And if you just turn towards the front of the Bible, another couple of books, you'll be there. Jeremiah 23, page 650, if you're using the church's Bible. Page 650. Now, it's something we ought to understand. The cultural context of Jeremiah and Ezekiel roughly the same. Jeremiah is speaking from Jerusalem, and he's... He's proclaiming that, uh, listen, unless there's repentance, Babylon's going to come in and sack Jerusalem. And uh, Ezekiel, he's prophesying from Babylon after uh, God made good on his promise through Jeremiah. So the cultural context is roughly the same. And for the benefit of those who have just completed the study of Daniel with us, it's, that's the context. Ezekiel and Daniel are contemporaries. But you'll notice in Jeremiah 23, the first thing Jeremiah does is he raises the same indictment as Ezekiel. He says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Verse 2, Therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, ye have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then notice the Lord makes his promise to gather his sheep in verse 3. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all of the countries where I have driven them. And I will bring them back to their fold and they shall be fruitful and multiply. Okay, all of this we have seen from Ezekiel, haven't we? But notice what the Lord says next in verse 4. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them. And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Here the Lord is promising to set shepherds over his people. Now the question before us this morning is, who are these shepherds? Who who are these individuals? Well, for the answer, uh, turn with me now to the other end of the Bible, to 1 Peter. If you're making the... If you're using the church's Bible, you turn to page 1016. 1 Peter in chapter 5. 1 Peter 5. Page 1016 if you're using the church's Bible. Starting with... Verse 1, Peter gives this exhortation. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Look at verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God. There's that same old imagery again, isn't there? Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Who are these shepherds? Well, Peter answers in the Greek with the word presbyteros. They are the presbyteros. It's the word that we get presbyter from. A presbyter is an elder. They are to... Uh, shepherd the flock they're to shepherd God's people and basically what Peter is saying is this I exhort the presbyteros who are among you as a fellow uh, presbyteros to shepherd the flock 
We might say, I exhort the elders who are among you as a fellow elder to shepherd the flock. Now, where do these presbyters come from? Well, you don't need to turn here. Just listen for a few minutes. Uh, We are told about a story in Acts 14 where Paul and Barnabas go into the towns of Derbe and Lystra and Iconium and uh, they preach the gospel and the Holy Spirit uh, works through the proclamation of the gospel and we are told there that uh, disciples are made. People embrace the gospel message. They become believers and churches are planted. And then in verse 14, or I'm sorry, in verse 23 of chapter 14, uh, the apostles uh, appoint elders for them in every church. They appoint elders for them in every church. Now, I don't talk about this much. And I think that if you listen to my sermons, I think you would probably listen to many months worth of sermons and not hear me use the word Presbyterian one single time. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not thinking that you would. You guys who listen, I don't think I hardly ever use the word Presbyterian. When I write sermons, my goal is not to produce Presbyterians. I don't think we're going to use that word in heaven, quite frankly. I, I don't think we'll use words like Baptists and Presbyterians and all that. I don't know. I've not been to heaven yet, but I'm not thinking that we're going to. But my goal is not to produce Presbyterians when I, when I write sermons. My goal is to produce Christians. My goal is to strengthen Christians who have already been produced. That's what I aim for. But all of that having been said, I'm Presbyterian for a reason. I, I am I'm a, a minister in the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church for a reason. And it's because I believe the church is to be governed by a plurality of presbyteros, a plurality of elders. That's why I am Presbyterian. That's the, the principal reason. And the church, uh, uh, the elders of the church, Sometimes they're also referred to by another word, uh, episkopos. Some of you might recognize that word. It sounds a little bit like episcopal. Episcopos. You don't need to remember these words. I'm sharing them with you uh, to, to help show you what's going on here and only for that reason. But episcopos, if you will turn to page 998 of your Bible or to Titus chapter 1, Verses 4 to 9, if you just turn towards the back just a little bit to Titus 1, 4 and verse 9, you will see that these words are used interchangeably. The word presbyteros and the word episkopos. They're used interchangeably to speak of the same office. In Titus chapter 1, verses 4 to 9, Paul's writing to Titus, my true child, in a common faith, He says, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And if you look at verse 5, I'll pause for a moment. I still hear pages rattling. You take your time. In verse 5, Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint what? Elders. Elders. Notice it's plural. Elders in every town as I directed you. I want to make two observations here. One is the word is presbyter. It's translated elder. 
And two, it's referring to a plurality of presbyters or elders. It's referring to a plurality here. It's not one, it's a group. Now, he continues in verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now look at verse 7. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy words taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, if you back up at the beginning of verse 7, the Apostle Paul uses another word. It's generally translated overseer, but it's the word episkopos. So he's using, in this context, he's using these words interchangeably. In fact, uh, episkopos can be translated overseer, it can be translated guardian, it can be translated bishop. Uh, it can be translated in all these ways. Again, in Acts 20, you don't need to turn there. Just listen to uh, me for a moment. In Acts 20, the Apostle Paul calls the Ephesian elders. In verse 17, they're called elders. He calls the elders to himself so that he can talk with them. And he begins to give them a charge to tell them about his departure. And when he gets to verse 28, he says this, pay careful attention to yourselves. He's speaking to elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock. Again, using the shepherding, uh, these shepherding metaphors. Pay attention to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you. Notice this is the work of the Holy Spirit. I've been couching a lot of my language over Donald, giving praise to God because we believe to our measure of faith it's been the work of the Holy Spirit working in his life that has brought us to this place. It's the Holy Spirit who makes elders in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. There Paul, speaking to the same group of people, uses the word episkopos. Presbyteros, episkopos is being used interchangeably. And again, I want to note that there's a plurality. In other words, there's always more than one. In fact, this morning, as I was going over this, I, I, I just had this thought. And I, I thought, you know, I'm going to do a search in the English Standard Version. I didn't have time to do a search really uh, through, through the Greek and everything. But I did a search on elder singular to see what verses come up. It was about 12 different verses, and most of the verses... We're speaking of someone who is simply older than another person. He is your elder. That's one of the usages. In other cases, uh, the other cases, it was referring to uh, the Apostle John or the Apostle Peter, and they were making reference to themselves. And in one case, elder was used singularly by the Apostle Paul and said, listen, don't bring a charge against an elder unless you have two or three witnesses. And I share this with you because whenever the elders are, are talked about in terms of church leadership, it is always plural. And that is my conviction that the church of God is to be led under Christ by a plurality of elders. Under a plurality. You get that out of your mouth real fast. Plurality of elders. Now we see this in action again in Acts 15. You know, you don't need to turn there either, but in Acts 15, an issue arises in the church and the, 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 the subject of the matter is a message for another day, but it causes all of the leaders to come together. We're told that the apostles and the elders come together 
to discuss these matters. And as they come together, it is not, it's not that they come to one person who is the chief elder, and then they ask the chief elder what they're to do. They all come together. And as they come together, they discuss the matters. And Peter makes his case, and uh, Paul and uh, Barnabas give their reports. And uh, 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 James actually stands up, and he makes a recommendation. And of course, this really, if you would come to one of our presbytery meetings, this is what it kind of sounds like. We have things on the floor. You come to one of our session meetings, you have, we might have something on the floor of our session meeting. Someone is bringing up some business. Someone makes a recommendation. It's discussed around a, 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 a table or a group of people, and it's prayed over. And sometimes we, we pass the resolution. Sometimes we modify it. Sometimes we don't do it at all. But that's what we see. My point here is that in this synod meeting, in this, we have the church being governed by a plurality of elders. Now, of course, we no longer have any apostles with us with a capital A, because one of the criteria for being an apostle with a capital A is that you were a witness of Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist. And... You were with him through that whole period of time and witnessed his ascension into heaven. Uh, that, would, that really limits the, that limits the candidates to a relatively small uh, group of people who have long since passed away. So we have, no longer have the apostles that was for a period of time. But what is left? What is left is a group of elders. That is what is left. Now, uh, our scripture memory verse, 1 Timothy 5, 17, if you turn there again, we're almost done flipping around. Page 993, if you're using the church's Bible. And while you're turning there, I want to say a few things about how we plant churches in the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, because that's pertinent to this morning's discussion. When we plant churches, we don't, especially a church like this one, it started from scratch. It started with nothing. And I mean to tell you, nothing. We started with nothing. There was nothing there. Uh, we started with a little Bible study, and there's a couple of us who were present in that Bible study who I'm proud to say are still with us now. Uh, but that having been said, uh, uh, we don't start without leadership. We borrow elders from other places. We borrow elders from existing congregations. And that's why Brian is with us this morning. That's why Rich is with us this morning. These men have years of experience as elders. And they have been faithfully serving us behind the scenes for quite a long time. We borrow them so that the ministry has qualified leadership from the get-go. I have been so extraordinarily blessed over these last eight years. I've had, I've had these men alongside of me who I've been able to, they're, they're both older than me. I've been able to look up to them. I've been able to, to learn so much from them. And they, their support has been absolutely incredible. There, there's many ministers out there that don't have what we have here. It's so special. And it's so wonderful. Now this morning, 
Rich will be stepping down from what we call provisional session. He will be stepping down as Donald is brought in. Rich will be stepping down. And that is the promise. That, that's, that's the goal. The provisional session comes alongside to come alongside of us until such time that the Lord can raise up leadership that's indigenous to the new ministry. And here we will, Donald will be our second elder. So the Lord is building his church and for that we're grateful. Now if you look to 1 Timothy 5.17, the Apostle Paul makes a distinction here. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now here there's a distinction made between what we call ruling elder and a teaching elder. First thing that needs to be said is all elders should be apt to teach. But we wouldn't want to put expectations on Donald that he's going to deliver sermons every week. I don't think he would like that if we did that. He's shaking his head. No. Please no. Not all... Uh, elders are being called as pastors to do what I'm doing this morning. And in fact, in the ARP, that whole process is much more involved, actually. Uh, if Donald wanted to become a pastor, that would be wonderful. The, his first step would be to come to session and discuss that desire to session. Then our process goes like this. We would begin to discern with him. We would all begin to pray and seek the Lord's will together. If we were convinced that Donald is being called, we think he's being called, then we would take him to a presbytery meeting and he would be brought before our credentials committee and uh, he would be assigned a mentor who is not me, it would be someone in addition to me. And he would be mentored for about three, three and a half years. And at such time, he would enter into a seminary that's approved by the presbytery. And oh, would he get examined? Oh my goodness, would you be examined? Upside, downside, right side, over. And uh, you'd be living the examined life. Uh, uh, but that wouldn't be all that would be happening to you. The presbytery wants, they're not interested in you being able to dance through the academic hoops. You met these guys. They want to know who you are. They want to get to know you. They want to know how they can help you. They want to know how they can love you. They want to know who your wife is and who your children are and how they can pray for them. Again, I'm a very blessed man to be involved in such an outfit as this. It really is that way. I think, Donald, when you were at the last Presbyterian, you felt that way. Uh, so it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Now, I'm going through all of this because I want to share something here about what Donald's being called to. If Donald would go through all of this, if he decides he would want to be a minister, and he would go through all of those hoops and jump through all of that stuff and pass all those exams... He would still have to receive a call from a church before he, could be before he could be ordained. But let's suppose hypothetically he did receive a call. And he took his first church. And he started working with his first session. And he got in his head, you know, these other guys here, they've never been to seminary. These other guys haven't been examined like I have. I'm somehow kind of like up here and they're maybe here. Okay, that's flat out wrong. That's flat out wrong. They're right here. I'm holding my hands as even as I can make them. I don't have any of that. I'm trying to make them even. If I ever get it in my head that because I've passed a couple of exams, exams somewhere down the road and jumped through a couple more hoops that I'm somehow above these men, 
Oh, Lord, rebuke me. The church is to be governed by a plurality of elders. We're all expendable. Listen, God doesn't have to use any of us. And the fact that he would use any of us is really a great privilege, and it's, and it's absolutely wonderful. Listen to the word of Christ on this. It comes from Matthew chapter 20 and verses 25 to 28. Jesus called his disciples to him, and he said, Listen, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whomever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What does all that mean? It means that leadership in the church is to be servant leadership. You remember the indictment way back in Ezekiel 34. Those false shepherds, they, they were ruling harshly. We're not to rule harshly, we're to rule in gentleness. Now the ruling elder is to come alongside the pastor and share in his labors. And I just have one more thing I want to share here with you. There's a model of church ministry that's been popular in the United States for quite some time that is brutal. And it's this model of ministry where the pastor does everything. That's bad for everybody. First of all, the pastor can't do everything. If you're going to teach through the books, the pastor's called to preach the whole counsel of God. I don't know any way to do that than to start like at the beginning and go to the end. If we're going to do the whole thing, right? I mean, so I started a book and then I preach through the book and when we get done with the book, then I go to another book, except for when we have special services like this. That's a lot of work. You know, my assignment is to preach what comes next. It's not what I already know. I can't sit on a hobby horse here. I got to preach what's next. It takes an enormous amount of time. Now, if the pastor is doing all of the visitation, he's doing all of the counseling, he's doing all of the other stuff, guess what? Something's going to give. What's going to happen? Ultimately, what's going to happen is the sheep are going to get scattered. That work has not been... One person has never been called to do all this work. It's to be distributed evenly. But when you have a pastor... And a group of elders, all working as elders together, the work can be taken up. And it can be done well and effectually. And that's what we're endeavoring to do here. That's why we're doing what we're doing here this morning.